Welcome to In the Isles, the movie and TV podcast that will realise its full potential before the age of 30. I'm James. I'm Dan. This week, we're going to talk about what we've been watching. We'll have a vintage review of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring on its 20th anniversary. Real news and our main review is Tick, Tick, Boom on Netflix starring Andrew Garfield. Can I be pedantic? Yes. Is it Tick, Tick, Boom or is it Tick, Tick? Boom. You are correct. Yeah, it's tick, tick, ellipsis, boom. <laughs> that was that was very pedantic, and I regret it already. So let's move swiftly on. James, how are you and the world of you? Has anything interesting happened in the last week? I had a bad social experience. Again. I, yeah. We tried to go to a hip event in Manchester called Frost Fair, and there were images of it online from the year before, and it's basically... Christmas market mixed with live music, mixed with cool cafe stuff. And we went there, it was raining. And we thought, even though it's raining, I'm sure it'll be fine. People are tough, there'll be people there. So we went in, it was a free event outside next to Whitworth Gallery in Whitworth Park. There was an outdoor dance floor with live music in front of Whitworth Gallery. There was no one on the dance floor at all. It was empty. And there was this live dj play music and there was three people stood next to him on stage just drinking hot drinks it was a sad sad scene go around the corner to the food market you know and there was a another depressing sight of a pizza stall with his full pizza oven behind him with no customers no one just sat in the rain and mud burger van no customers no one again Go to the craft market, which is, you know, Christmas market, typical stuff, but only about five stalls. No one. No, there was no one there. It was fully empty. And the people on this craft stalls were sat in the rain, but covered. So they weren't wet. In the wind, freezing cold, I felt awful for them. I felt absolutely awful. And we were, me and my wife, my wife, we were looking at each other just saying, this is so awkward because we are the only people here. What do we do? So we, we just left. We left, but you could feel the people's eyes on you. And we wondered, has everyone else just come in, taken one look at it and turned around? Nobody particularly hip to that groove then. No, not at all. And there is a hashtag. There was a hashtag for it on, on the website. It might have been hashtag Frostfair. And there were no posts on Instagram for it. Like not not even the Whitworth Gallery Instagram itself seemed to be promoting the event. It was really really bad, and they they'd hired security for it and they put in so much effort. Like it all looked really good, but it was completely empty. A Manchester City Centre student centre event empty. Surprised the uh, security didn't do sort of a uh, reverse responsibility where they just kept people in and wouldn't let them leave. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a shame. Tainted by the weather. But it does it does count for a lot, the weather, doesn't it? It does ruin and mar a lot of people's days. So maybe if the sun was out, different outcome perhaps, but never mind. You'll never know. Yeah. How are you? I'm all right. I also ventured out into Manchester last week for a, an impromptu Christmas do with my work. And it's not my anecdote, this. It's someone else's. You get... A, into a few drinks, people get lively and they, they reveal some things. So 
one of the guys that I was out with, he's pretty new to the business, and he was talking about the fact that he just moved into a new house. Well, not just, this is about a year ago. Moved into a new house, and he had quite an elderly neighbour in his 80s, and his cat would off would often frequent this woman's house, go indoors, she'd feed it, got quite pally with it to the extent where the cat was pretty much always in her house. And he thought, she's on her own, it's keeping her company, I'm fine with it, it's not a problem. Until he got home from work one day and his neighbour was just about to go into her house at the same time. She looked very upset. And he said, oh, love, are you all right? What's up? And she said... I've just had a really hard day. Um, I've had to put my uh, my cat down today. And he looks at her with like such, like, hang on a minute, no, this can't be true. And he realised that it was entirely true. This woman had put his cat down <laughs> and he did not have the heart to say to her, you, what the hell were you thinking? He just invited her in for a brew and comforted her. And I thought, good on you, because I would have probably suffocated this woman if that was my cat. I don't think I'd have dealt with it the same way. Yeah, props to him. He handled that well. What a decent human being. However, didn't have to pay the veterinary bill, did he? So swings and roundabouts. Mm, mm. Yeah, every cloud. Anyway, we've waffled on enough. Yeah. I do apologise before we carry on. It is raining quite a lot. And if you hear that, think of it as atmospheric sound. James, what have you been watching this week? Now that it's available in VOD, Video On Demand, I watched The Last Duel, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Matt Damon, Adam Driver, and Jodie Coomer, Comer, which is about the last sanctioned duel in 14th century France. And Jodie Comer makes a assault allegation, and Matt Damon and Adam Driver settle the truth of that via a duel. It was very well-reviewed. But no one watched this film, like no one. It was it was a complete disaster. And I really enjoyed this film. I liked it a lot. I'd recommend it. It's shocking that it didn't make more money because it's so lavish. There's big set pieces, lots of extras in all their costumes and the CGI backdrops, and no one watched it. And it's, it's awkward to watch that this put so much effort into it, but no one watched it. And it's a great shame because it is really good. The three leads, Jodie... Kuma, Matt Damon, Adam Driver are all great. The main point of the film is the systemic misogyny, all men are evil. And I think that that being so prominent in the reviews and in the marketing may be part of why it didn't do very well because maybe the target audience don't want to go and see a film where they get told that they're evil. But when you sit down and watch it, it is very good. It's definitely not subtle in that messaging There are three chapters to the film, The Truth According to Matt Damon, The Truth According to Adam Driver, The Truth According to Jodie Comer. And it shows like The Truth According to Marguerite. And then as that title card fades out, the truth, the words, the truth, stay on screen a little bit longer. So it just says the truth. It's very subtle. We understand the point that's being made, that that she has the whole truth. We get it. We knew that it was building to that. What I thought I wouldn't like was the structure of the same story from three different perspectives, but it doesn't repeat the same story. It's like Matt Damon is beginning and a little bit in the middle. Adam Driver is middle and then going towards the end. And then Jodie Comer is skipped through the beginning and middle really quickly. And then the end. 
So each of the three stories overlap with each other more than they just repeat. But there are some scenes where you, it's very different in how the actors perform, which is a, it is a, interesting to watch from a directing, acting perspective. So Adam Driver and Jodie Comer kiss, like they're told to kiss each other. From Adam Driver's perspective, it's the long, it's a long kiss. There's a lot of eye contact afterwards. The moment lingers forever. But then from Jodie Comer's perspective, it's an awkward, quick kiss, and she does an awkward look like that wasn't very nice, and then it's, they move on. So there's interesting moments like that that play on the idea of it's different people's perspectives. The final fight, the last duel, it's a truly epic, excellent fight. The physicality of it, the dirt, the blood, it all looks really good. It's a fully scripted scene where they start off uh, jousting each other, then they joust again. Now they're off the horses. They use these weapons. Now they're using these weapons. The Where the fight evolves and becomes more and more brutal I really liked that. But what makes it truly great, the end fight, is that you're more concerned about Jodie Comer's character's fate and what it means for her and whether she's going to be declared as honest or whether she's going to be killed for being a liar. That's the main concern, not the two men. So it worked really well. Definitely worth watching. And you can now watch it. The Last Duel on Video On Demand. So in the present as well, isn't it, this? Yes. Okay. Um, no, it truly no, shocks. Set, set in sorry, and it's not set in the present. No. It's, no. Yeah, it's set in the 14th century. And just another thing to note. Sorry, Jodie Comer. If you remember when we watched Free Guy, I said, "Oh yeah, whatever. She's okay." Help! I said, "She's amazing. This is brilliant." Again, here she's amazing. So I'm I'm fully converted to that bandwagon now. She's done Help, where she's doing her own accent, social worker, gritty drama, and now she's doing epic costume drama just as well she's superb so you would consider yourself a kumara yes okay Coin that Jody Ike. Jody Ike. that's better that is better yeah we'll, we'll go with that um yeah i was truly shocked to see this on disney plus because we were like we should have watched this at the cinema and just merely after discussing it i think it was the next day oh bang it's on disney plus with no real you know fanfare behind it um which is a shame i feel like this is we've we've discussed it a lot there's just stuff arriving left right and center on different platforms and it's just going unnoticed i feel like this is a continuation of the last jewels experience in the cinema oh nobody watched it there and now no one's going to know it's on disney plus either it's a shame it is a shame yeah last question on this what about the wigs because i've heard that they're quite like oh it's a bad wig. Can't get away from the hair piece. It's bad hair, yes, but it didn't strike me as bad wig. It's just bad 14th century hair. Yeah, you didn't have the luxury of VR5 and brill cream in those days, did you? No. Like Matt Damon's hair is awful, but that just seems more that's his character. Like he's not really presented as an attractive man yeah. or a, a good a good catch. He's a bit of a joke, so it fits his character that he doesn't have good hair. Anything else you've been watching? Yes. In My Skin on the BBC, the Beeb. Now, I did watch Britney, which is a five-star reviewed comedy on BBC Three, and I watched it thinking, new content, watch it. I didn't laugh at all, sorry. It was like a less funny Pen15 so the BBC suggested In My Skin, which I watched in full, all two series. Season two came out in November 2021. Season one, I think, was two years ago. 
five episodes a season, 10 episodes. I've watched the whole thing. I love it. It's fantastic. It's great. And it's written by Kayleigh Llewellyn. It is set in Wales and it is about a teenage high school girl. As if there's like adult high school girls. Um, <laughs> played by Gabrielle Creevy. And the plot is that she lives a double life. So at home, she has a bipolar mother who's in and out of hospital. She has an abusive alcoholic father. Home life is not good. When she's at school, she lies about her life. She says that her mum works in HR. She's got a, a, a second house in Italy. Life is good. She's constantly lying about the reasons that she wasn't doing things, constantly lying about her health to hide the fact that the reason that she's missing school is because she's taking care of her mother. So that all sounds quite quite dark, quite quite grim, but it's actually a darkly comic show for the most part. And it truly is funny. It doesn't make light of the mother's mental health problems or the alcoholic father. The comedy comes from the dialogue between the school pupils and the teachers. Like the teachers don't care at all about the students. So Bethan, who's the main character, she's a poet and she asks her English teacher about writing a novel and the English teacher just says, it takes a really long time and that's it. She just puts her off. And the PE teacher, I mean, I couldn't possibly do justice to it, but there's a female Welsh PE teacher and every line she says is pure gold. But I'm not even going to try and repeat, but she's truly hilarious. And the exchanges between Bethan and her best friends, Lydia and Travis, they have a really fun dynamic. Everything they say is funny. There's this absolute asshole bully character who's also their friend. And he's like a cringe, like white rapper as well. And it's, it's very, very funny, but also very moving because you see Bethan trying to get her life together. And on the Wikipedia summary of the reception, it says that it should be considered alongside Fleabag and I May Destroy You as great recent dramas. And I fully agree with that in my skin. Heavy recommend for this. Please watch it. It's one of those British drama comedies that could only be written by a British person. Right. Okay. Not looking to alienate there. Um, no, but I just think the the, um, the tone of it, the dark comedy of it, yeah, and that that the presentation of school life, the humour, the Welsh accent. Oh, you mean mean more culturally then? Yeah, culturally. No, yeah. yeah, not like only British people can write things this good. I mean, <laughs> for, for what it is, it's quintessentially British. I'll put it that way. Right. No, that makes makes sense. Uh, I'll make you feel better for your comment before about teenage high school girls as opposed to adult ones pen 15 prime example yeah so don't feel bad for saying it um between this and ladhood which i highly recommended bbc3 this is bbc3 as well yes it, it is yeah yeah they, they are on a roll this year doing some really good stuff so no i think i think i'll check that out how how moving is it or how dark would you say i know, I know it's comedy obviously dark comedy but to what extent am I going to shed tears, James? It's not relentlessly bleak. It presents the bipolar and the dad being a dick in a straightforward way. Doesn't overdo it. 
the moving stuff comes towards the end of series two, which is the last series. This is it where, you know, Bethan realizes the impact of all these experiences on her. I want something of this ilk. So I'm glad that you've seeked it out and, and found it. I think I might well watch this. Say it again. In my skin on BBC iPlayer. Very good. Anything else? That's all from me. Daniel, what have you been watching? I watched True Story on Netflix, which is completely false advertising because it's not a true story, which is the only IMDb trivia fact that you will find on the website. (laughs) True Story is, in fact, not a true story. Thank you. Thanks for that. And it follows Kevin Hart as a, a highly successful comedian. So he's playing a version of himself. And he is box office, big bucks, doing extremely well in his career. He's just gone into the film world and he's in like a superhero film and it co-stars real world Chris Hemsworth and it's just past a billion dollar mark in box office revenue. And the parallels between real life Kevin Hart and this character, you you can't escape it. It's clearly evident. He he is playing a version of himself. He's gone through a highly publicised divorce quite a few years back now the same can be said for the character in this but in this he's at the height of his fame he's carrying out press interviews for this new film selling out to sold out stadiums with his stand-up routine life is very rosy but one night he gets with a woman he meets at a party sex that was sex and he takes her back to this presidential suite and he wakes up in the morning and the woman he's in bed with is, is now dead, which he only finds out because his brother wakes him up and tells him that she is dead. I've got a real problem with that. Why is he in his room? Why is he checked to pulse? How does he know? I, I don't know if that actually comes into play because I haven't finished the series, but it all felt a bit odd and I thought this doesn't really ring true. It's basically another of those shows where people find themselves in the middle of a really unimaginable nightmare and make piss poor decisions about how to handle it which leads to you know it spirals out of control and it's essentially about him trying to hold on to the fame and the reputation that he's worked so hard to establish wesley snipes co-stars as his screw up of a brother and it's very clear from the word go that he's an absolute burden on kevin hart he's constantly bailing him out of situations he's, he's a liability And it was nice to see Wesley Snipes back on screen after being in jail for quite a while. I'm not dissing you. It's the truth, mate. But I couldn't help feel that he's just not suited to this part. He's a bit of a dimwit in this. He's like the idiotic buffoon brother. And he's more like, I mean, you've, I've not seen him in everything, but everything I I have seen him in, he's more like cocksure, like really self-assured, full of himself. And I'm not saying he's only limited to that, but it just didn't feel natural for him to be in this role. I almost thought, can you and Kevin Hart not switch here and not make it about a comedian? Because that's the only bit that really makes this fit. I don't know. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It's just, I don't know, it was a bit jarring for me. Kevin Hart, meanwhile, despite being a comedian and playing himself, it's it's a really straight-faced, dramatic role for him. And I do think that he does a really good job. He's he's really charismatic. I'm not familiar with Kevin Hart, by the way. I've not watched any of his stuff, but just seen him this. He is charismatic and he's believable. 
and I was impressed by his acting. Um, and one, th- one thing that I did like about this was Kevin Hart goes around with this entourage, which includes like his managers and surrounding comedy writers, and it gives you a bit of an insight into, oh, yeah, these one-man comedy stand-up routines, they're not necessarily the product of one man's genius. He's fed a lot of this material, and I don't think... I mean, maybe this isn't the norm, but it did make me go, oh, God, yeah, they probably do have people going, oh, here's a joke for you tonight, and them going, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll have that one, I'll not have that one. I just never really thought about comedy in that sort of way, so that was quite an interesting, you know, way into this world. Uh, and you get a bit of friction there as well, because he's obviously the one in the limelight, and these people are just, like, the catalyst for his success, and the, he's feeding off them, and there's a bit of, like, oh, I'm not getting any credit for this. It's an easy show to binge. The first episode is an hour long, and I did think, I don't know if I can take seven hour long episodes of this, but it turns out that's just the pilot. The rest is, like, 30-minute chunks uh, of episodes, so you can easily fly through this. As I said, I haven't finished it yet, it is by no means boring, but I've seen people describe this as an edge-of-your-seat thriller. I'm not sure I'm in agreement with that. It feels like it plods along at points. Like, I'm sure the first three episodes were in this hotel room with him dealing with the situation, and I feel like that could have been accelerated a bit. But it's, it's solid enough to be worthy of a watch. It's by no means bad. I just I would put it on par with a very good ITV or BBC drama but it's American with bigger actors. I watched the first 15 minutes and then not because I didn't like it, but because I just had had other priorities on my watch list. It seemed okay, but based on your comments, I'm not really inspired to watch it. Sorry. No, no. And I, I, I don't think know that's... why I'm apologizing to you. That's really <laughs> that's weird. Yeah, you really don't need to. I think that's kind of what I'm saying it is it's serviceable. But probably watch it if you're a Kevin Hart fan. If you're not, there's probably yeah. there's, there's better stuff out there, really. So is it a is it a comedy or not? It is straight up not a comedy. Right. It is is a full on crime thriller. It just so happens that Kevin Hart is playing a comedian, but you get very little of seeing that side of him. Okay. Which leads me to slightly believe that he has had a dead woman in his apartment, and this is his cathartic way of saying this is a true story. I've named the series true story. We swept it all under the rug, but I've kind of told you by proxy that I had a dead woman in my apartment. Thank you. Right. Like when OJ Simpson wrote, if I did it, that book that was. Yeah. No, I'm sure that didn't happen. Do not sue me, please. I was just. It didn't happen. Neither of those things happened. No. True story. And as you as you've been talking, I've looked it up on IMDb, and you weren't joking. The top trivia item is true story is not a true story. Yep, the one and only. <laughs> is that the only, or have they added to it now? They've added one more that is a spoiler. All oh, right, can't go into that. Then. That says that contradicts the first trivia item that says true story is a semi autobiographical series based on Kevin Hart's life as a comedian. Make your mind up. Never trust IMDb trivia. I will say 7.7, has it got? Six, yeah. It just seems too high. Yeah. Kevin Hart, proper fans. They're the ones rating this so high because it's, oh, he's doing drama and he's actually good in it. Too much goodwill. Yeah. He's extremely popular. Yes. Never seen one of your shows. Daniel, what else have you been watching? The new HBO sort of crime drama starring David Thewlis and Olivia Coleman. It's Landscapers. 
which is not about gardening. Just so you know. This one is a true story, and it's based on the real-life case of Susan and Christopher Edwards, who, this isn't a spoiler, you told more or less straight away, British couple who were accused of murdering Susan Edwards' parents before burying them in the back garden of their Nottingham home before running off to France to start a new life. When in France, they struggle for money. The husband can't speak a word of French, which I think is pretty paramount starting a life there and getting a job. They're living on the edge of poverty. And because of all that, there's like this moment where Christopher Edwards rings his stepmother in England and says, I've done a terrible thing and I buried Susan's parents. And this woman doing the right and honourable thing, she calls the police, tips them off, and this sparks the investigation into a historical crime. As I said, spoilers, they do find the bodies in the garden. And the first episode is about seeing the police try and convince the couple to come back to England's first question. I've only seen the first episode. I really wanted to watch all of this before I reviewed it. So I'll just give a very brief thought on my final synopsis next week, because it's only four episodes. But this is a really bold approach to telling a story like this. It is so not conventional, it's untrue. You get a lot of breaking the fourth wall and talking directly to the camera or the audience, flitting between black and white and colour, cutting in real raw news footage from the time in between scenes. It is slightly disarming at points, but I really liked how different this feels as a series. And I feel like I've said that like three times in the last few weeks, but it feels like this genre is so overexposed that people know that they need to do something different now. And we're starting to see that, which is which is really good. Uh, the best example of that is Olivia Coleman's character. She has a fascination with old school Western films and you get these bizarre scenes where she is imagining herself and her husband as actors within the film, but then they're having just an everyday conversation, I think, from memory. All of it is actually a bit bizarre. You'll know if you've watched it. I think when it finished, my partner said, that is one of the strangest things we've watched recently, and that is saying a lot because we watch a lot of weird things. It's That's not a very flattering impression. No. <laughs> oh, oh, of my partner. I thought you meant impression of the series. Um, she, she doesn't, doesn't sound like that. She She's doesn't. Lovely. Thank you. That's very nice. But she doesn't listen, so it's fine. Okay. <laughs> this is this is a form of therapy for me. <laughs> Let me roll with it. <laughs> um, is it? Oh, you've you've put me off now. Um, the show it's it's extremely odd in that there's comedic moments and it's set against this backdrop of really morbid subject matter. And I was surprised to find myself laughing like a lot at this. The main detective in it, who's in charge of this investigation, he's played by Daniel Rigby. He's bloody hilarious. He's pissed off with the world. He wants an easy life. He's not getting it. And as a result, he treats all his colleagues like they're absolute idiots. He's just spitting venomous, foul-mouthed responses at them all the time. And I loved his delivery. I thought it was excellent. The revelation for me in that, oh, this is not formulaic at all. I've, I looked up who the director is, and it's Will Sharp, who I do not expect many people to know of, but he's the writer, director, and star of a Channel 4 black comedy called Flowers, which I think finished last year, and it stars Olivia Coleman and Julian Barrett. And it's about this guy, if I remember rightly, suffering from depression, and he wants to kill himself. Hilarious, right? 
But somehow it it was hilarious and and charming at the same time. So I think if you enjoyed the tone of that, I think you will like this. Um, he's also got another film out soon with Benedict Cumberbatch, hasn't he? The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne. So he's doing very well for himself. And I think he is a real talent to watch. Uh, but back to landscapers, I can't stress this enough. Don't be expecting your average crime drama because it categorically is not that. I'm a bit annoyed because I, without knowing this was coming out, I listened to a true crime podcast about this very case a few weeks ago. So I know all the twisted revelations that, that come to the fore. But I'm curious to see how they keep the balance of being respectful when this has such a comedic edge, because I think that's going to be a hard thing to to do but so far i'm very intrigued and and that's it landscapers right that sounds good I, I, I it caught my eye because it was it's being promoted on like magazine covers in in tasco like radio times and things like that and there was a, a digital banner above the uh, a56 going into stratford <laughs> <laughs> and it's got olivia coleman in it and yeah the flowers connection someone told me to watch flowers i never did but that's a good note that it's actually made by someone who does interesting work. Yeah, definitely not the norm, but I would still, if you, if you like that sort of thing, I'm a sucker for it. Anything that's a bit out there and not conventional, give it me. Um, and this is one of those guys who's very adept at doing so. So yeah, I would say give it a go if you're that sort of person. So the crime occurs in the first episode and then it's, it's about the aftermath. It's not, it's not like a, the crime is actually not shown. So the crime's no. already happened like 10 years earlier. You're just like, this is them now. And then the investigation starts and you're kind of thrown into it. Sounds very good. James, <laughs> you may have uh, told us what's on your watch list, but there was something else that you failed to mention. We didn't fail to mention. We've structured this properly. What else have you watched? From landscapers to the landscapes of New Zealand, we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, extended edition, 20th anniversary. So she wants some Groundhog Day, some Glen Gary Ross, a little Lolita would definitely set this podcast off right. I'm deep, I'm deep, I'm deep, I'm deep, I'm deep. Oh yeah. Well, well. She said she wants some War of the World, some Road to Perdition, some Start of a Ten. We'll definitely set this podcast off right. I'm deep, I'm deep. Yes, it yes, will. It will. I'm deep, it definitely I'm will. Deep. Oh, yes, it will. You know what I told her? Well, well, well. The Fellowship of the Ring was voted the number one greatest film of all time by Empire Magazine readers. Did you know that? Who's in that poll? What do you mean? Who Who voted? Yeah. It, it, see, it appeared to be readers. Yeah. And, yeah, I think top 10 was Empire Strikes Back and then Godfather, Goodfellow, what, what you'd expect, really. Yeah. So, from a, lot a, of, a large, lot of geeks like us. Yeah, from, from a largely uh, white male readership, their favourite <laughs> top films are all white male-led films, uh, <laughs> which I'm sure Empire wasn't happy about exposing themselves a little bit. I was only joking. I can see why it's number one. Loads yeah. of people love this film, and uh, yeah. I can see why. I still very vividly remember watching this film when I was 15 years old, and in my 15-year-old pretentiousness, I said, that film has changed the way that I view cinema. And I said cinema. The Minds of Moria sequence is the best thing that I have ever seen. 
terms of atmosphere and really feeling, really feeling like you're inside the mine. I, I loved it. And I think for me, it's like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars are always like competing with each other in my head as, as what is the great franchise. And like Star Wars, I love Star Wars, but that's something that was before my time and introduced to me. Whereas Lord of the Rings, the films, not the books. I haven't read I the book, Truth's Form. I've, I've, read, I've read two out of three, two out oh. of three, one more to go. Um, the films, uh, I watched those when they, they came out and I got to experience it. So that will, that has a place in my heart it is a truly great film and lindsay ellis the american film critic on youtuber i don't know if you know who that is but she made a comment that i'm going to copy which is that all three of the lord of the rings films they're all great films but the fellowship of the ring is the masterpiece and that's what she said and that's what i think too the fellowship of the ring has that single story running through it. It doesn't have the split books and trying to combine it into one film or going back and forth. It's that one walking from point A to point B, from left to right across the screen, just like Lawrence of Arabia, and building perfectly from Frodo's in the Shire by himself, add Sam, add the other two, the rest of the fellowship. Everything builds up perfectly. And I'm not going to talk about the whole film. I'm going to let you speak in a second. But the finale which is the, the, the fight at Amon Hen. In within like a, a 10 minute span, you have the honor of Aragorn when he decides not to take the ring from Frodo. You have the heroism of Merry and Pippin when they distract the orcs. You have sacrifice from Boromir and then loyalty from Sam. So in the, within like 50, within 10 minutes, you have the all these characters like fully realizing their like, true selves, and that's what makes it like perfect to me. So even though it's not the end of the story, it ends in such an incredible way that f you get to fully see the endings for all those characters, and it's a fully satisfying ending. And with the soundtrack, I will be listening to that soundtrack for the rest of my life. I'm sure. <laughs> it's fantastic so you are also someone that has seen the fellowship thing but i think you feel differently about it i don't think you're as full of 20 years worth of praise no ashamed to say far from it i'm not i'm not gonna piss on your parade i'm not um i will fully actually agree with what you just said about the ending of the fellowship of the ring when you compare it against something like june obviously we've had a, a sequel greenlit but that was very was a very blunt, ah, yeah, not satisfactory ending for me at least. And and yeah, I, I can see why you're saying that it is kind of its own thing and, and could stand on its own two feet. At least I think that's what you're saying. Fair to say. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. As a as a film, as a piece of work, yeah, it does have a satisfying ending, even though of course the story isn't over. Yeah. And we've we've mentioned it a few times. Me and you have been friends for a very long time, and you would think that for two people who see eye to eye on quite a lot, I would say that there are fundamental things that we're not married up with. And I think your love for Star Wars and Lord of the Rings is one of them. I'm, I'm just not that sort of person. But it never caused any friction, so that's good. Um, but I always remember how sniffy I was about this entire franchise, and I can admire it for what it is. I've just never been a fantasy guy. I think that's my whole thing. Um, but I went and did 
I basically like pissed away £17,000 of my money to go to university and do a drama film and English and American literature course. And on that course, there was a module called Falstaff to Gandalf, A Journey Through Middle Earth or something like that. And as part of it, this is one of the four times I went to uni, by the way, <laughs> we had to watch the Lord of the Rings extended edition. And I was, I was dreading it. I was absolutely dreading it. Knowing that I'm not a fan, I thought I don't want to put myself through a film that was already long and just despise the whole thing. And I'll tell you for now, and I probably did tell you at the time, I can't remember. I actually really enjoyed the extended edition. It made me rethink my whole thinking behind, you know, what I believe about this franchise. And I thought, you know what, off the back of that, I'm going to go and watch the extended version. So the other two films, and I never did. So I will hold my hands up and say, I don't feel like I have a fully informed opinion to say that these are not good films. They just didn't speak to me at the time. I went and watched every single one on its opening weekend of release. So something drew me to it. And I cannot argue with you that the soundtrack is immense and I still listen to it as well. So there's a lot of things going for this film. I think it is a technical marvel as well. I won't take that away from it, especially in its time. 20 years ago, I think they achieved something quite spectacular and that wasn't lost on me, despite the fact that maybe it didn't speak to me as someone who's not a fantasy fan. There is a lot going for this franchise and what, what Peter... we got his fucking name now. Jackson. Thank you. And what Peter Jackson achieved. So, yes, I have mixed feelings. I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't feel equipped. That's fine. I think it's like... Uh... It's like Star Wars in 1977. It's not like everyone on Earth actually liked it. Mm. It's just very popular. Shout out to Philippa Boynes and Fran Walsh, though. One of them is Peter Jackson's wife. I don't know which one. They co-wrote the screenplay, and I think they, when you listen to the director's commentary, it seems a bit like they are more responsible for crafting the book into a screenplay that wasn't a complete disaster. But it's Peter Jackson that is the filmmaker that, that directed it. Another thing, having finally read the book, it is a miracle that they turned that text into what is basically a three-hour action film that has more going on for it as well, but it's, it's sort of built around action set pieces. You know how it's often said by people of a previous generation, they don't make films like this anymore like Lawrence of Arabia, for example, mentioned for a second time. They don't make films like this anymore. Or Indiana Jones, they don't make films like this anymore. And that's how I feel a little bit like with Lord of the Rings. They don't make films like this anymore because even though Lord of the Rings has a lot of CGI, they do do a lot on, well, it's entirely on location in New Zealand. And there is a lot of miniatures where they put CGI people walking around in Rivendell to hide that it was a miniature miniatures of the the two towers they have men in prosthetics for the orcs which you do not see anymore you don't see it so re they really don't make films like this anymore even though it was it was 2001 a modern film it's actually in our lifetime changed to where you have now the equivalent the big ones of like avengers it's all blue screen cgi villains they don't go out into the field for it it's different now yeah, even is it Hobbiton? Oh, Hobbiton. the sh oh yeah, Hobbiton. The Shire yeah. is it? Shire, is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that was all practical, wasn't it? Like they built those yeah. little huts and stuff. No, I, I, get, I get where you're coming from with that. There's uh, a lot of dedication that went into this. It was it was obviously a passion project. And uh, I'm glad you made note of that, actually, about recognising Fran Walsh and uh, the other woman or person um, that I failed to mention. I think Fran Walsh was his wife. Because you can tell that his skill set, Peter Jackson, is that technical element. I was reading a bit more about what he actually did with the Beatles Get Back documentary this week. And my word, the effort that you would never know has gone into that from a technical standpoint is next level. It's it's unbelievable. And I think that's what he truly loves about filmmaking. And you can see that in this. You can see that. You can see. And I think it is important as well to watch, if you have access to it, the appendices of the extended editions, which is two discs for each film for the making of and those in, in in total six dvds that is like a filmmaking course in itself because they tell you everything about the pre-production storyboards making the armor filming it editing it cj everything you learn absolutely everything about it and you see the level of effort that went into it and it is incredible and a lot of effort goes into avengers as well but i've seen some behind the scenes stuff of avengers and it's basically like blue screen we'll figure it out there <laughs> Oh, how times have changed for the worst. Fair enough. So, in summary, well, did you have more to say? I could go on forever. I could go on. <laughs> I really could go on. But we'll have another two chances to do the other two films. In summary, then, a film that still holds up to this day and makes us both feel incredibly old to say it's 20 years old, which just, slight like putting a knife in me, that is, it's, it's not nice. But let's let's just live down memory lane and forget how many years have actually passed from past to present real news yes it's the real thing it is now real real news news marvel news no please no no santa inc is a hbo max original it's a stop-motion animation comedy, eight episodes, about 25 minutes each, from the mind of... Well, it's not from the mind of Seth Rogen. It stars Seth Rogen and Sarah Silverman, two of the funniest and most popular people in entertainment today. I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah. <laughs> and it currently holds a rating on IMDb of 1.1. Oh, what racist shit is in this? Surely. No way it can be that bad. One point... That's unheard of. They've offended someone. It's been review bombed. What's going on? 1.1 from 11,000 votes. And it isn't like your typical review bomb where you have uh, the usual sort of 10, a lot of 10s, 9, 8, some 7s, and then loads of 1s. It's all 1s. It's 90% 1, 4.5% 10. Can I, I the, can I guess? Yeah. Is it anti-Semitic? No. Oh, because they're both Jewish, aren't they? Yes. Right. Okay. Sorry. Go on. It's and it, well, it's been it's been argued that it's anti-Christian. It's definitely anti-Christmas. I've watched the first episode. I watched the trailer. It's it's and it's a raunchy anti-Christmas film, and it is about Santa. Santa is a a, a role that exists, and it is occupied by a different white man throughout history. And Sarah Silverman's character is an elf, and she believes that it is time for someone of a different 
to take on the role of Santa. So it's about her journey to become Santa. And it's a very, it's a very foul-mouthed piece of work. And I watched the first episode. I too hated it. It's awful. It's not funny. It has swearing for the sake of swearing in the absence of actual jokes. It's bad. And it's another one of those, I hate to say, it, I don't want to make this into a brand, but it is one of those pieces of entertainment that is about the message. It, it is propaganda in all the ways that you should have come, come to recognise in the past few years. And that's why it has had negative reviews. But there's an additional element to it, which is that it's being completely ignored by, well, I'll just call it the, the, the press, but what I mean like internet review sites. This has no reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. There is no critical response to this. So it's been, it's the most, it's currently the most hated show in existence. And it's been criticized primarily because it, 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 ha- it is propaganda. And what you'd normally see is the press defending the program or saying that it, it's good just because it is a piece of propaganda that they support as well. But that's not the case. It's being ignored. And I, I just wonder why that is. There's only there's one notable review for it in Variety that says, oh, well, you know, it's, it's not good. And why is that? So I would just put my tinfoil hat on and say something. I'm not actually saying this is like a Connor in succession. Sorry to mention succession again. It's such an obvious piece of propaganda that it exposes other pieces of media as propaganda with the same message. So the press are ignoring it. They want it to go away and let them continue to produce more subtle pieces of propaganda that the press will then support. That's my conspiracy theory. I don't think it's completely tin hat wearing. The other potential thing might be they have used all their media connections, Sarah Silverman and Seth Rogen, to go, hey, can I pay you not to review this? Because I know that you're not going to have a differing opinion other than the wide consensus that it's bad. Please don't watch it. Don't add to the noise. That's the other thing that could potentially be happening. Yeah. <clears throat> because I because I get that it's a relatively small like HBO Max original animated comedy. It's a Christmas special. But it, it to have nothing on Rotten Tomatoes, no score is unusual. Is is extremely odd. Yeah. And if you look for it, if you were to Google it now today, listener, and look for the news, you will you may find a variety review. But the articles that you'll find about it is Seth Rogen responding to the reviews and saying that it's white supremacy. Right. Okay. Fair enough. And that it's white supremacy is white is is review bombing, the thing. That's all you will find. It's it's a really in, it's an interesting case. It's it's like a, it's a flashpoint in the ongoing and I hate this phrase, the the culture war. And I, and I enjoyed that because you know we we sniff around for news. And I've not heard anything about this whatsoever. So just you having a keen eye on what's going on from a review standpoint, you've brought this. I I doubt this will be on any other podcast this week. So thanks, James, for taking the time. Thank you. No worries. Well, I only know about it because of, you know, YouTube. So it's not like it's not been discussed. Well, don't let the cat out of the bag. People need to know that. (laughs) Shall we stick with Christmas? Yes. Not really that interesting, this. It can be just, let's comment on it and move on. But a BBC article noted this week that the number of Christmas films that are released has exponentially grown since 
2009, so a decade ago. So they provided a few stats on this. In 2009, for the festive period, around 30 films were released to coincide with Christmas, with Christmas in the title. As of this year, do you want to take a stab at how many films are new in the year of 2021 with Christmas in the title? So that was, so it was 30 in 2009? Yeah, roughly. This is a bar chart. I'm guessing figures. 200 in 2021. You've seen the article, haven't you? Yes, it's no. 200. Oh. <laughs> it is 200. Now, that's... <laughs> That's just about the number of things that I watch, whether it be TV or film, within a year. That's too much to be Christmas-related. I don't think we get 200 horror films a year. No. What a waste of money. Got two questions. Question number one, does that, does that number track with the number of films being made overall? If the answer is yes, then I'd say it's, this is fake news. Another <laughs> thing <laughs> is... May I spec? I can speculate. The reason is that because of the number of streaming services available, they're just putting out more Christmas stuff. Like on Netflix alone, there's got to be twenty because there's that Vanessa Hudgens one. There's loads of Christmas films on Netflix. Well, let me disappoint you, James, by saying I don't have any surrounding stats around how many films are being made in general to back up your point. But you may very well have a point. And it will coincide with the fact that there's just more films being made now. Um, I think this is fake news. It is, in essence, non-news. I'm sorry I brought it up. There you have mm. it. Not really news. I just thought it was interesting to throw that out there. That's a bit of a... Here's some stats. Okay. Oh, good uh, music that you had there. Beatboxing. It's more of a sound effect, but... Yeah. Would you consider yourself a musical genius? Do I write the jingles? No, I don't. Okay. Well, we are going to talk about a musical genius next. Yeah. Ruined you, segue. I apologize. I thought you'd pick up on it. But... Hello, I'd like to order an opinion, please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Let me sit back. This is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync. Tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap again. This week's main review is Tick, Tick, Boom. Hello. Hi. Welcome. I'm Jonathan Larson. I am 29 years old. I work at the Moondance Diner. Check. One sec. Do we take reservations? No, we do not take... We're, we're a diner. I have an original rock musical. Hey, boy genius. That I have spent the last eight years of my life writing. He's getting out. You're gonna be rich and famous. And rewriting. Did you crack it yet? Oh, I'm getting so close. And rewriting. Can I hear it? Any day now. Eight years! And the time keeps ticking. Tick, tick. You need to ask, are you letting yourself be led by fear or by love? Fear! A hundred percent fear! Based on the autobiographical musical by playwright Jonathan Larson, it's the story of an aspiring composer in New York City who is worried he made the wrong career choice whilst navigating the pressures of love and friendship. James, this is one of those films where it could go either way, in my opinion. It's not clear-cut. But what did you think of Tick, Tick, Boom? 
I should say from the outset that I'm not a fan of musicals, meaning that I don't seek out musicals and it's unusual for me to watch a musical. However, oh, sorry, I've not written his name down. Just written Miranda El Diablo. <laughs> Lin- Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> Brilliant. <sighs> okay. However, Hamilton is a masterpiece and immigrants get the job done. I, my expectations were high because this is directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. The structure of this film confused me and it was only at the end that I realised what the structure was. So Andrew Garfield is doing his one-man show and narrating the events of the film. That wasn't clear to me. It, that seems obvious now, but I kept thinking when he was showing that performance of Tick, Tick, Boom, when is this happening and what's going on? But that narration, that framing device, keeps things moving on and the songs are fine. I'm not knowledgeable of musicals. I'm not knowledgeable of musical songs, which is to say I'm ignorant, so I can't say whether the songs are good or bad. But I did like them, and there were some good, one or two serious high points musically. What struck me, though, is how it seemed like a parody of a musical. They're all at a party, and they break into song and go completely over the top. I'm more used to seeing that done as a joke, and I've known musical theatre people and they do sing all the time, and it's really annoying. The cast are all great, especially Michael, played by Robin de Jesus. Vanessa Hudgens is in a tertiary supporting role that was quite jarring. She was just there as a hired singer without much character. And I looked at a Rotten Tomatoes, and she basically hasn't made any good films in a very long time. So maybe that's why she's in a smaller role. Um, High School Musical. Yeah, but that was a that was ages ago. It's fresh in my mind. Yeah. So I, I suppose she's got a good Instagram, but she's not an important actor. I do want to talk in depth about Andrew Garfield's character, Jonathan Larson, in spoilers. In short, I thought he was selfish, self-centered, ignorant, annoying. I know it's based on a real person. I'm sure he's a great guy. But the character, as written, I didn't like him. But the drama is good. All the talk about his young friends dying around him was powerful and handled sensitively, and that generated some of the best musical moments, as I've said. It's a serious film, and it does pack a punch, but overall it's uplifting and inspiring, maybe. Daniel, what did you think of Tick, Tick, Boom? I'll say up top, much like you did, not a huge musical fan, but I am known to obsess over a key few in recent years, one being The Book of Mormon, and Hamilton, another example of it. And once I'm sucked into a musical, I will play them relentlessly to the point where I really annoy my partner. And she says, do you play something else? Another fine impression. Um, so I, I am partial to one, but I wouldn't consider myself, at, as you said, I don't, I don't gravitate towards the genre. Regardless, we really should compare notes. <laughs> yes, I was intrigued as well because... Lynn manuel Miranda is involved in this because I liked Hamilton so much. So I was excited and I thought this has every chance of being a late contender in my top five of the year list. That, that's how much anticipation I had for this film. And maybe it'll sneak into the uh, Spotify rap list for 2022, but we'll have to wait a whole year for, for me to tell you that. There's a lot to praise this film for. Probably the most important factor that the music and how it kind of underpins every scene. And you can tell that it's been well considered and there's 
like you said, some catchy tunes. So big tick. Andrew Garfield is infectious as Jonathan Larson. You do get the feeling that he really submerged himself into the role and his commitment to me is without question. I can see it there on screen. Not to mention the fact that he can really sing. He's brilliant in this. I don't think he's the greatest singer of all time, but he's got a good voice, which is just as well because, yes, there's other actors in this, but this is very much the Jonathan Larson, Andrew Garfield show. So if he's not carrying your attention, you've got very big problems. Another plus point, it is an energetic film, similar to what I said about Red Notice, despite them being completely different films a few weeks back. You don't get much chance to reflect on the finer details of what you've just seen. It's pretty much musical number, done, on to the next song, so on and so on. Unlike Red Notice, though, this film is aiming to say something a bit more deeper than that, and it's essentially a film about striving for success, being met with failure, my day-to-day, um, attempting to realise your potential and all that universal theme bollocks. So nothing we're not accustomed to. And I think it does a sufficient job of uh, exploring those things. So another tick. So that's two ticks. You ready for the boom? It's not as clever as I think it is. I personally found not being able to differentiate between what songs were part of the musical he was writing and what had been specifically composed for the film, really distracting. And I think that's down to the structure that you were talking about. I didn't really know what was happening till the end as well. And like you said, once you've got that, you think what an idiot is pretty obvious, but it, I don't think it comes across in the clearest manner. And as part of that, I didn't really know what his musical superbia was really about. There's mention of like sci-fi elements, but then half the lyrics don't seem to allude to that. And then it gets mentioned again at the end. And I thought, well, that, just went over my head completely. And obviously that's not the driving force of the film. It's not the bit you should care about. You should care about, you know, this man's life and his struggle to create something of note within his lifetime. But I just thought there's something not clicking here for me. And I think the problem with that is what you've identified. Jonathan Larson comes across as the most self-obsessed personality and you don't get much balance to that. And I found him a really difficult person to warm to. I found him engaging enough to watch moment to moment. He's not boring, far from it, but he's just not a very sympathetic or compassionate person. And all the people he surrounds himself with are secondary priority to him. They're just there to indulge his creative journey and pander to him because his needs are more important than theirs. And because of that, his ambition causes him to lose sight of those closest to him. And there are points where the film recognises that, it's addressed with him, but it feels as though it's put in there to placate those who just don't understand what it means to be an artist rather than any genuine recognition of his failure as a friend or a boyfriend. And, and it caused me to think, does Lin-Manuel Miranda, as a director, is he too wrapped up in how much he identifies with Larson as an artist? And it came across a bit like, this is what it means to work in musical theatre. You either get it or you don't. And that, and I felt alienated because of that. What I couldn't escape from with all that in mind is what do I know about Jonathan Larson outside of the creative process? And for me, I don't think I learned anything at all. His character's a bit one-dimensional, not as a screen presence. He's constantly interesting to watch. I just mean motivationally, what makes him tick? I've done it again. <laughs> 
all those things combined, I find it really hard to get swept away with the narrative. We've watched some absolute crap over the last 12 months. And don't get me wrong, this doesn't fall into that category. It's a well-made film and there's a lot to commend it for. But I'm just shocked that I don't have strong feelings about it either way. It kind of landed with a dull thud for me. And that was what I wasn't expecting. It felt a bit average. It landed with a dull thud, not a boom. Indeed. Tick, tick, dull thud. <laughs> not as an attractive title, really, is it? But... No. I'm, I was, I'm so ignorant that I didn't even realise that Tick, Tick, Boom is the name of his musical upon which the film is based. And maybe there was an assumption there that Lin-Manuel Miranda made that we would know. Which ties into your point. It's a very good point that I was thinking that if you don't have the knowledge of this is what it is to work in a musical, or this is what musicals are, it felt like you couldn't really get into it. It mm. didn't feel inclusive of ignorant buffoons like us. And there was talk about he wrote Rent and that changed musicals. Well, what if you don't know what musicals were or what they are now? <laughs> I don't I don't know what I don't know what that means. So to say that someone has changed musicals, I've got no idea what that means. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And it's definitely not in this film. And that seems to be the payoff for all his hard work that he changed musicals. Like, fine, that's, I'm sure that's true. Don't, want, don't know what that means. You know, and regular listeners to the pod will know that I'm quite well up on the language and theory of intersectionality and privilege. Viewed through that lens, I was watching this film and... Jonathan Larson is the straight white male of the piece. And he is this long-suffering, selfish person. And his two main people in his life is his, his girlfriend, who is a woman of colour, and his best friend, who is gay. And through the lens of intersectionality, I thought, Jonathan Larson, you're not the most sympathetic person here. Like, you have the privilege of spending eight years writing a musical and doing nothing else. Mm. Like you should feel lucky to be able to do that because there are people in your life that are supposed to be close to you that don't have the privileges really that you have in a wider sense, but we're supposed to think that he's the long suffering person. No, I agree, but I do give the film credit for, it doesn't make a meal out of it, which is what I think it could have done more of really. But there are key scenes where, especially between him and his best friend, he's whinging about how hard, hard done by he is with his musical. and Oh, it's not gone down as well as expected, whatever. And you can see how exasperated his friend is. It's written all over his face. And for me, it was like he was mirroring my reaction to him just droning on. So it's not like it, the film is completely ignorant to it. I just don't think it hammers it home in a way that it should because, it, it like you said, he's, he is completely ignorant to how fortunate he is to be able to do this. Uh, it does work in a diner, though. Give him credit for that. Yeah, yeah. He does. He has a fairly epic check-your-privilege moment where he says, you tried to tell me, and there's one of the, the best songs of the whole thing, but it's when the Michael, the friend character, is like, leading that song. I mean, it's not even it's not even Jonathan Larson's song, but, but that's the best that's like the best song of the whole thing when Michael's singing about himself and how he doesn't have time left. Yeah, and there is in another moment of the film, well, I won't go into we'll talk about it in spoilers, but somebody says to him in a dramatic moment, You're thinking about writing a song, aren't you? And when he has this showdown with his friend, 
I thought, again, you are being an opportunist, and I know you're thinking of a song right now, despite how terrible the situation is. Yeah, which he is because which he was because he wrote Rent. Yeah. <laughs> which is about people in the situation his friend is in. So he, he was thinking about writing Rent. Yeah, you think you're right about uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda, how he he holds maybe he holds the character in such high regard, he holds the act, artistic process in such high regard that it doesn't it doesn't criticize Jonathan Larson for be for like obviously as written as written in the script for being pretty selfish guy. Yeah, and that's why I'd I would love to know what his family think of this representation of him because like you said, I'm sure it's always hard with a with a biographical film to pin down every aspect of someone's personality, but this is very one note, I think, which is is unfortunate. Um, and maybe they're perfectly happy with this because it's not just. It's not saying this guy's evil. He's just a bit of a prick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the girlfriend, just leave him. Please like leave him. You can you you can do better than this. Yeah. The girlfriend, by the way, whose name is Susan Wilson, played by Alexandra Ship, who's very good. She's not merely the girlfriend. I apologize. I think you've I think you've made up for it there. It's fine. Right, let's cut to the chase. James, drop the mic. Would you recommend Tick, Tick, Boom? No. Sorry, but no. Would you recommend Tick, Tick, Boom? I honestly don't know. I'm going to go with my heart right now. It's a no. I'm, I'm so glad we're on the same wavelength, but at the same time, I'm starting to think, what have we missed? Because the consensus is this is a great film. But is that is that a consensus that's come from people that already like musicals? Because if you if you read the the user reviews on IMDb, many of them, many of the positive ones seem to be that I I love musicals, I understand musicals, and I like this. Mm. Yeah, and any critics are already predispositioned to come into films looking at the artistic vision, and you know probably on the same sort of. Uh, Page as, as Lynn Manuel Miranda, so maybe he's been given a bit of uh, leeway there. Not sure, but anyway, um, we can't always agree with the critics, and it's nice to know that we have an alternative opinion. What one little thing I do want to add to this because I do feel slightly bad that I had a really broken experience watching this. I watched it in six sittings, um, one of which was whilst eating a chicken burger and chips in a car park, um, with my phone propped up on my dashboard. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know whether that might have affected my opinion of this film, but I'm assuming you weren't in that situation and still have arrived at this decision. So that makes me feel slightly better. I had a broken experience as well. Maybe not six parts, maybe three or four. One of them waiting in a pharmacy, watching the film on my phone, but with really low volume and subtitles. Not the best approach to musical, but that's what happened. I personally think that's that's a brilliant use of your time in a pharmacy because, my God, do them cues and the waiting times take the mix. So good on you for utilising your time effectively. Yeah. Right. Shall we move forward into spoilers? Yes. Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. Jonathan Larson's musical Superbia has a workshop, which is like a pitch meeting. Even I didn't even understand what that really was, and no one wants to produce it. 
So then he decides to write Tick, Tick, Boom instead, which is a success. And completely outside the events of the film, he also it's also said that he writes Rent, which changes musicals forever, but he tragically dies the opening night or the day of the previews. And he splits up with his girlfriend, Alexandra Ship. After That's what dead. happens. <laughs> no, it's 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 suggested that she well they've already split up, I think. Well by the time he's doing tick tick boom, but she comes she comes back just to excuse him of all his crimes to forgive him for being absolutely awful to her there's a lot of build-up around susan has to make a decision on this job offer that she's got in delaware or something and jonathan larson has to stay in new york and it builds up to that you've got to make a decision you've got to make a decision and there's a build-up to that point and it's obvious i think it's intentionally showing that he's absorbed in his art but it took it too far to the point where I just feel like you're being a prick. Mm. If you're absorbed, I get the point is that he's absorbed in his art, fine, but he still wasn't sympathetic. And then he's so absorbed in his art that he that he doesn't allow his friend Michael to tell him that he's HIV positive, which is a similar kind of arc. And he has that moment of check your privilege. You did try to tell me. He's absorbed in his work or artistic process. But there's a lack of respect for his friends, I felt. Yeah, and that, that's all I saw all the way through it, which is why I really struggled to connect with that character. There is a really nice scene where I think it's before Michael tells, yeah, it's before he t- tells him that he's HIV positive, where they have a bit of a showdown in the middle of the street where he's been given a job opportunity by his friend and he just messes it all up by basically treating it like it's some form of idiotic thing. Um, and they compare the lives and what they're both striving for and why they're doing the things that they do. And I think it didn't help really with showing a softer side to him. That was, that was a moment for him to have some form of recognition as well as that scene that comes later. But again, he's just too wrapped up in it. And I suppose that's purposeful. That's what they want you to to think. But I just thought, nah, can't, can't buy into your bullshit, mate. You're just a very, very selfish person. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, and you touched on it a little bit there. It's, are you referring to the bit where he goes to the focus group it's, and his friend gives him the chance to go to the focus yes, group? Yes, that's one. Yeah, and there's an arrogance to that as well where he realises and he speaks to the camera and says, I could just do this for a job because I'm so clever, I'm so creative. Mm. I could, yeah. but I could do this, but I'm still above it. Yeah. I'm above <laughs> it. And I will not lower myself to do what the vast majority of people on earth do. Have you heard of... Voir, or I think it's pronounced Voir, the series of video essays that's on Netflix, produced by David Fincher. It's no, called V-O-I-R. Oh, yes, I have, I have heard of it. Anyway, there's an episode that I watched that is about not liking the main character. And it uses the examples of Lawrence of Arabia, Taxi Driver, Godfather. And he says, the, the thesis is basically, it's okay not to like the main character in a film. That's not a requirement for a film being good art is supposed to challenge you it's not about presenting you characters that you like i agree i agree with that however in this film it seems like we are supposed to like the main character because it opens with a montage of people applauding him and crying about how great he is Mm. 
it centers on him so much that if you don't like him, which we didn't, the film doesn't really work. Yeah, and again, not to just pay lip service to you, but I, I agree again because it's it depends what type of film it is, doesn't it? And if you look at something like Taxi Driver, it's not it's not required in that film. That's not what it's about. Is you liking that character? But this is about his life and you respect him what he has produced as an artist. And if you don't like the guy, that's extremely difficult. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it was much needed in this film and it just, as you've said, it, it didn't quite, didn't quite succeed on that for me. I feel like we're getting hung up on whether or not we like this character, but he is in every scene. He's in every scene. And it's all about him. So it yeah. does all hinge on that. So we'll, we'll, We'll go down a different path for now. I had a respect for this film for what it did in terms of how it tells its story. So from minute one, you know he's dead already. So I thought, oh, this is going to be a build-up to him producing Rent and seeing all the trials and tribulations that he goes through to get to that point. And it is a bit of that, but it is a point in time. It isn't every single thing leading up to that bit now. I wasn't equipped with the knowledge of exactly when he died. So when they told me at the end that it was pretty much just before Rent came out on Broadway, the respect that I had for it kind of died because I thought, oh, you've made this decision to not make that part of the story, but they actually had no choice because he wasn't alive at that point. But regardless, it did feel a bit different from your normal sort of autobiographical tale because you don't get to see him witnesses on success which i thought was was more poignant and uh, different from your average thing but it is literally down to circumstance and when he died so i can't really say well done mr director for making that choice because he had no choice i saying that it's not about him making his greatest work which autobiographies usually are yes sorry it's that's about what it's, saying. is that what you're saying okay right yeah no i agree with that and another positive which is, we're being spoilers, it's not really a spoiler. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda's first film, and not, not that I'm trying to sound too much like we're professional critics, I did like the use of the camera. It did all look good. I think there's some, there's some good shots. He's not just shooting the songs and hoping for the best. There's a lot of movement going on. Like when, when um, Andrew Garfield is walking, when they do the superbia workshop and andrew garfield walks towards all the musicians it like follows him from behind him and you can really feel the pressure it is it is a well-made film no i i think we should give him props for that because it in no way does this reek of amateur or first-time director it doesn't you wouldn't think that to look at it so i'll agree with you on that imdb trivia time <laughs> I read something. I find this quite fascinating. Did you pick up on the... So he's just done his workshop. He's demonstrated his works to a bunch of people. Not that much interest. On the day of his birthday, he gets a phone call off Steve, Stephen Sondheim, who's like the musical McDaddy of, of musical theatre, uh, who recently died the other week. Did you notice anything about that scene that was a bit odd? No. So I thought... Hang on a minute, that is not Bradley Whitford who plays Stephen Sondheim. It sounds nothing like him. What's going on here? And it turns out that Bradley Whitford had finished filming all his scenes and Stephen Sondheim had, had 
seen or, or listened to this bit of dialogue that was said and said, that doesn't sound terribly me. Can I redo it, please? And it's actually him leaving the voicemail. Now, that's actually quite a touching thing, especially that he's, he's passed away. But I noticed it because I thought, hang on, what's going on here? If you just run out of actors or and just add someone random to it, I would never know that if I hadn't looked it up on IMDb. I guess all of that is completely redundant because it is a nice thing to commemorate him with. But at the same time, I thought, this is a bit jarring. Um, but interesting, nonetheless, that he's made his mark and left left something with this film, I suppose, which is his voice. Don't know what I'm trying to say there. If you know, I think it's, it's yeah. I didn't notice. I didn't notice the difference, but that is good. Nice connection. Again, though, plays into the idea that this is a. If you like your musicals, you'll get more out of this than a, a non-musical. Yeah. Person, even the way that Sondheim is introduced is oh that's Stephen Sondheim, who? Yeah. I've what got... what has he done? <laughs> I mean, got... no, I've I've known now his body of work i've heard of a lot of those things but there's no explanation right well you can hardly spoil a film which tells you its main protagonist is dead within the first minute of its running time so i guess we'll call it quits there but james a very special episode on the horizon for next week what is it it's the year in review 2021 where we'll talk about the year that has passed and our top five movies and tv and quite a uh, quite a task, I would say, this year, because unlike last year, I only realised this the other day, we only had like six months of films and TV to contend with. We've been going for quite a while now. We're established. We have a full year's worth of content to mine through, some of which I did not even realise was this year. Um, so I'm glad I've made my IMDb watch list of everything that I've consumed. Otherwise, I think I'd have forgotten about everything. I'm looking forward to that. And you may be thinking... What about Spider-Man? We're going to do Spider-Man after the year in review, and then we're going to do The Matrix after that. Right. Thank you very much for listening. If you wish to follow us, you can do so. On Instagram, In The Isles Podcast. You can email us at intheislespodcast at gmail.com. That you can. Well, thank you very much for listening. Enjoy what's left of the year. We'll see you on the other side. No, it's, it's released before the end of the year. It doesn't matter. James, salvage the end of this episode, please. I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I can't think of anything. In which case, cue the outro. Oh,